You're listening to audio from Harvest Bible Chapel, Philadelphia, where we believe in preaching the authoritative power of God's Word each and every week. For more content and information about our church, visit harvestphiladelphia.org. Well, good morning, church. Go ahead and open a copy of God's Word uh, to Colossians chapter 1, uh, verse 28, as we continue in our series, Embracing the Supremacy of Christ. If you need a copy of God's Word, feel free to raise your hand. Our ushers would be happy to bring you one. Colossians chapter 1 this morning, as we continue in our series, Embracing the Supremacy of Jesus Christ. To this point, we've defined supremacy as that person or thing who in your heart and in your mind surpasses everything else in status, power, and authority, and thereby, therefore, you give it permission, that person or that thing, to have authority over your life. It's that thing that is so important to you, so crucial to you, that you love so much that you want it to literally control your thoughts, your feelings, your actions. And in the book of Colossians, all the way through chapter one, as we're gonna close out today, Paul has been arguing that the only person that is worthy of having that level of supremacy in your life is none other than Jesus Christ. And so as we begin our sermon today, let's pray as the title of our message today is Maturity in Christ. Father, we pray, God, now as we bow before your presence and we enter into the presence of your word, God, that your word would be clear, that it would be compelling, that it would be convicting, and that it would be life-changing. God, give us ears to hear what you have to say, eyes to see what the text is telling us, and a will to change in the power of the Spirit. Pray in Jesus' wonderful name. And all God's people said, amen. Well, I don't know if you're anything like us, but we love having people over into our house. In fact, Miranda and I have commented that it always feels like any week where we don't have people in our home, we're kind of wasting our house. So we love having people over. And anytime people come over to our house, there is always the um, obligatory tour We take them around the house and we show them the living room, the dining room, and the kids' room, and the toy room. We take them downstairs where all the kids' toys are at. Sometimes if they're really close, we'll take them upstairs. But inevitably, I don't know if you're anything like us, we always have that one room. You know what I'm talking about? We always got that one room where the door stays shut. Okay, because that's where all the dead bodies are. No, I'm kidding. Um... (laughs) The, store day, the, the door stays closed because why? It's, it's a mess. That's where we throw all of our junk into it. And it might not be anything sinful in there. It's just we don't want people to see our mess. Well, you see, when Jesus moves into the throne room of your heart, when you embrace Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, and he moves in through the power of the Holy Spirit, you know, sometimes there are rooms that we just say to Jesus, you know what, not this one. We keep the door shut because we really don't want to deal with the mess. You know what I'm talking about? And you see, what Paul has been doing through the book of Colossians is he has been arguing for this one truth, that Jesus is not only worthy of entering into every room in the throne room of our heart, but he is also worthy of being trusted to clean the mess in our lives. And that is what Paul has been arguing for in the book of Colossians, that if he's supreme over the universe, if he's supreme over the church, and if he's technically supreme over your soul, then give him the keys to every room in your life. And when you do, what will happen 
is Jesus will begin to clean the mess and make it beautiful. And we find that here in chapter one, verse 28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature, cleaned up in Christ. For this I toil, I'm struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great the struggle I have for you, for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches and the fullness of understanding, the knowledge of God's mercy, which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you from plausible arguments, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit and rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. The title of this message this morning is Maturity in Christ. And first of all, we want to just flesh out what maturity is. If Paul's goal is your maturity to present you mature in Christ at the throne room of God, then what we ask is maturity. Well, point number one, maturity fleshed out. The word mature in chapter one, verse 28, is the word in the Greek, teleo, teleo. It might be translated in your Bible, perfect. It might be translated uh, complete. It might be translated mature. Now, in the context here in Colossians 1, Paul doesn't really put a whole lot of meat on the bones of this word. But if you turn with me from Colossians, put your finger there and turn this this way, to uh, 1 Corinthians 13, okay? It's back just a few books, 1 Corinthians 13. If you get to Acts or the Gospels, you've gone too far. 1 Corinthians 13. And here in this text, Paul puts a lot of meat on the bones of what maturity really is all about. Now, you're going to follow with me in verse 9 of chapter 13 in 1 Corinthians, and it says this, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect, there's the same word that Paul is using in Colossians 1.28, it's the Greek word teleo. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. In other words, what Paul is saying here in this text is he's saying what the Corinthians know at this point in time in history is partial, it is lacking, it is in complete, it's missing pieces. Um, It was interesting as I was downstairs in my basement kind of working through all of this, um, puzzling came to mind because in our family, we like to puzzle. Do we got any puzzlers out there? You like to kind of put all the pieces together. And so I actually pulled all the puzzles together and it was a stack about this high of puzzles. Now I knew we liked the puzzle. I didn't know we liked it that much. We like puzzling a lot. Now, if you're anything like me, if you've ever taken the time to try to put a thousand piece puzzle together, that's a lot of work, a lot of time. And usually for me, it takes about an entire week during vacation, because I can't do it while I'm working. I don't got that kind of time to put a puzzle together. And how many of you have ever tried putting a puzzle like that together? You get to the very end, and of course, what's happened? You're missing what? One. Is that exciting? Or is that infuriating? It's so infuriating. Why? Because you're like, you went to all this work, all this effort to put this beautiful picture together and you're missing one piece. It's incomplete. You don't have the perfect picture. What Paul's saying here in the text is this. An immature person is just like that. It's a person 
who was missing essential pieces in the goal of becoming just like Christ. That is an immature person. Missing essential pieces in their goal of maturity and looking like Jesus Christ. And that means an immature believer is a believer who understands that the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus has granted them forgiveness of sins. At the very basics, an immature believer understands that in Jesus, his life, death, burial, resurrection, I am forgiven of my sins and I have eternal life in Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen. But an immature believer hasn't yet figured out how the pieces of the gospel, the life, death, burial, and resurrection and return of Jesus fits into the puzzle of life. Are you tracking with me? That is that we got all the puzzle pieces, life, death, burial, resurrection, but I don't know how that fits into things like my dating relationships and my marriage. I don't know how that fits into and with food and sex and pleasure. I don't know how this fits into my struggle with my sexuality. I don't know how this fits into the context of my career path and entertainment decisions and social media choices. I don't know how the pieces fit into my response to injustice and suffering. I don't know how the, the, the pieces of the gospel fit into my understanding of relationships and my finances and my dreams and my pursuits and my sin patterns. Are you with me? See, an immature believer does not understand how the pieces of the gospel fit into the puzzle of life. Life is yet incomplete. And so that's why then Paul here in this chapter turns the analogy now to that of a child If you look back in chapter 13, verse 11, he says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, but when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Uh, You know, children are a lot like adults. I mean, they have their hands and they have feet and eyes and brain and lungs and heart. They have all the the same things, but what's the difference between a child versus an adult? The adult knows how to use all of it, right? They know how to use their eyes and hands and feet and hands and organs all in ways to accomplish things in life. I mean, you can hand a hammer to a child, but watch out, amen? Like, they they know how to swing it, they just might not know where to swing it, right? Uh, You can put a piano in front of a child and they can start banging on it, but they can't play Chopin. They can't play Mozart. You can put a, a golf club into the hand of a child, but there ain't no way they're gonna get a birdie. You see, a child is a lot like an adult, but they haven't figured out how to apply the gospel into the pieces of everyday life. And so what does a child need? A child needs to grow and to develop into adulthood so that they know how to use the fundamental elements of life. And what do they need? They need an example to look up to. They need an example to follow. Hence, mature in who? 
You know, when I was a little kid, I think I was about six or seven years old, the very first movie I think I ever saw in the movie theater, Rocky IV. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that really dates me. That was one of the first movies. I think it was about seven years old, and I wept like a baby next to my dad when Apollo died in the ring. Spoiler, sorry. And what? Did I just ruin it? <laughs> I am so sorry. Apollo dies in the ring. I wept like a baby. But I remember when, when, when Rocky went over to the uh, Soviet Union and he was, he was doing the training montage and he was, doing, he was hanging from the rafters doing sit-ups and, and he was running out in the snow and the KJB were following behind him and he was, he was doing all this stuff. I just, I remember during that montage, I was like, you got to avenge Apollo, avenge Apollo, get Ivan Drago. And I just thought to myself, I want to be Rocky. That's what I thought. I, I want to be Rocky. And so as soon as the movie, as soon as we got home, I put on my big winter coat, my big winter hat, and my big winter mittens. And I went outside and I started running in the snow like Rocky. And I would come up to the big uh, snow banks and I'd start chopping snow in half and running around the block. And I, I would imagine my neighbors were looking at me like, what is wrong with this kid? I wanted to be Rocky because I had someone that I admired, that I looked up to, that I wanted to be like. And that's exactly, Jesus is not only our Christus victor, having conquered sin and death and hell, he is also our Christus exemplar, that we are to follow and pattern and form our lives into to look like his. Maturation is the process by which we learn to fit the pieces of the life, death, burial, resurrection, return of Jesus into the intricate puzzle spaces of life. And we become more and more like Jesus. A child becoming an adult, so to speak. And so I ask this question as we continue on. Is that something you desire? Is Jesus that thing or that person who in your heart or mind surpasses everything else to the point that you want to pattern every area of your life after him? Because I think if we were honest with ourselves, there's a lot of us in here who we love Jesus and we're thankful for what he's done, but if we were honest with ourselves, that's not really the thing we're chasing after. And maybe today, this is the day where we say, you know what, I've been chasing after a lot of things in this life. It's time to start pursuing maturity in Christ. Amen? So point number two is this, making maturity our goal making maturity in Christ. It says now, if we back up into Colossians back there, chapter one, and join me back there in Colossians chapter one. And by the way, I love to hear the flipping of, of pages. I used to call that Baptist air conditioning. But now we got smartphones and all that fun stuff. That's okay. Chapter one, verse 28. It says uh, in the text here, him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom 
that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So here in the text, Paul is saying, I proclaim, I warn people, I teach people in all wisdom. The sum total of my ministry efforts is for one goal, that all of the people that I teach and I preach to and I warn and I admonish, my singular goal is for this purpose, to help us grow into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. To present, and look at what it says, to present some of them before the throne of God mature in Christ. Oh, I'm sorry, I got it wrong. I read it wrong. Here, let's try it again. Uh, To present many of them mature before the throne of God in Christ. Come on, Bereans, do I got it yet? No? Okay, all right, I'm going to take one more swing. To present most of them, like that would be really good, like 80%, 90%, right? Mature in Christ. Is that, no. What does he say? Three times. Look again at verse 28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone. Everyone, with all wisdom, that we might present everyone mature in Christ. You see, there was this future event in Paul's life where he knew he would stand before the throne of God, and he's not only accountable for how he has conformed his life to the image and likeness of Christ, but now because of his influence over the church, he would be responsible and accountable for how he presents other people mature in Christ as well. And so he says he gives his entire life for the sake of helping present others mature in Jesus Christ. Paul's goal for the Colossians was maturity in Christ. God's desire for you is maturity in Christ. Is your goal then in this life maturity in Christ? Or is it, I was at a wedding last week and it was a lot of fun. There was a big group of ladies that, got in front of the camera, they all got down together, and their life chant together for this picture was, all right, y'all, you know exactly what we need to say. YOLO! It's so rooted in our culture that we live for ourselves. But the thing about the Christian life is that we are not called to be our best person in this life, to live our best life now, but to pick up our cross, die to ourselves so that Christ can live through us. So a couple of thoughts on this um, as we focus in on the goal of maturity. Number one, I'll write this down. Maturity requires partnership. I'll write this down because this is crucial to our understanding of maturation in Christ. Maturity requires partnership with the Lord. Verse 29, look at what it says. For this I toil, struggling. Uh, That word toil and struggle is the idea of fatigue that, that Paul worked to the point of incredible exhaustion to not only grow in maturity himself, but to help others grow in maturity as well. But note this, God will never ask you to do something that you can't do yourself. He will always equip you to do what he calls you to do. Amen? God's not saying, hey, you're a frog, climb a tree, good luck. He says, become like my son, Well, how on earth is that possible? Look at what the text says. Through his what? With all his 
energy. That is the word, um, that's where we get the word, the Greek word dynamite. Dunamis. With all his what? Power. That mightily works within us. I thought, I, I meant to go out to a, um, a gas station this morning, Chris, and get every single possible energy drink that I thought I could because, I mean, there's how, there's how many energy drinks are there out there? I mean, when I was growing up, it was like jolt. That was it. That was the only energy drink that was really out there besides like Mountain Dew Code Red. That's what we had for energy drinks during college and summer. That's all I had. But now you've got Monster and Red Bull and Spark and five-hour energy, and you got this massive pile. And here's the thing. If I went out and got every energy drink possible and I smacked it right down here in front of you, it wouldn't hold a fraction of the power of the Holy Spirit that lives inside of you that wants to work with you to conform you into the image and likeness of his son. That's the power that you have. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is the same power that lives inside of you right now if you are born again. And so look what, back at what it says. I toil, I struggle. I'm going to exhaust myself to work toward the process, toward the goal of maturing. But at the same time, I'm doing it in the energy that God gives me. Maturation, maturity in Christ is a partnership effort. Secondly, the maturity in Christ is a process. It's a process. I, I want you to say this with me because this is really important. Um, the goal is this, not perfect, but always increasing, right? Not perfect, but always increasing. Can we say that together? Not perfect, but always increasing. You see, as you, as you trace or watch uh, the progression of Paul as he writes his letters, I mean, Paul started writing about 45 AD and wrote all the way till about 64 AD. And as you watch the progression of his letters, and as you see Paul grow into the image and likeness of Christ, you have this increasing sense that as Paul got older in the faith and he became more and more mature, like by the end of his life, before his life was taken from him, his attitude was such like this, man, I'm pretty awesome. Man, I've got this Bible thing figured out. Man, y'all Christians don't know what you're doing. You got to be like me. Come on, guys. Speed up. What, what was his attitude toward the end? It started out, I'm the, chief of, I'm the chief sinner amongst the apostles. That's where it started, 12 guys. I'm the lowest of these guys. But as his writings progress, he says, I'm not actually the chief of the apostles. I'm the chief sinner's center of all the saints. Everybody that's ever been born again, I'm the chief center among them. But then you, you see toward the end of his life, I'm the chief of all sinners. You see this progression as he grows in righteousness and becomes more like Jesus, he has this paradoxical awakening of his sinfulness. Isn't that crazy? They don't seem to make sense that as he grows in righteousness, as he separates himself from sinfulness in his life and sinful patterns in his life, and he actually becomes more and more like Jesus, he doesn't just 
have this attitude of, yeah, I've, I've figured it out. I've arrived. I've got my PhD in Jesus. No, it's, I'm the chief of all sinners. You see, I'm concerned in the church that so many of us believe that just because we've been saved a long time means we're mature. But then you see in people, and I include myself as I've been battling it and the Lord's been revealing this to me in my heart, that the, more and the older I get in chronological years, sometimes the more proud I become. And it should be the opposite, the more humble I get. But that's a process and it takes time to become more like Jesus. And so maybe you're here and say, yeah, I want to be like Jesus. I want to be like Jesus tomorrow. It's going to take time. Amen? Just like it did for Paul. And not only is it maturity going to be a process, not only is it going to require partnership, but man, it just requires a ton of patience. As God has, re, um, excuse me, maturity just requires a ton of patience. You know, the, real, the reality is, as we become more like Jesus, um, sometimes the transformation process is pretty imperceptible. Have you ever noticed that? Like, growth in the Christian life is, is some, most of the times incremental, not explosive, right? Are, are, you tra- are we tracking? Are, am I losing you? Are we getting bored? Do we need to stand up and take a, a break? Like, it's incremental, right? And it's imperceptible, right? And, and sometimes you're like, why am I not growing faster? I'm still struggling with the same thing that I used to struggle with. I still struggle with my temper. I still struggle with my anger. I still struggle with my language. I still struggle with all, the, all these sorts of things. I still struggle with all of these. Why am I not making more progress? But if I look at myself compared to five years ago, there's a lot of change. You see, sometimes the progression is very incremental. And though I want it to be explosive... It happens a little bit at a time as the Holy Spirit convicts me of my sin and turns me to Jesus and makes me a little bit more like him every day, day in and day out. That's how it works. You see, you're a lot more like Chinese bamboo than you realize. And all God's people said, what? (laughs) You guys are great. This is awesome. Eight years in and we finally got it. Awesome. We're a lot more like Chinese bamboo than we realize because here's the thing about Chinese bamboo. Bamboo, Chinese bamboo specifically, like any plant requires three things, sunlight, fertile soil, water, right? But with Chinese bamboo, you, you, you water the thing the first year, nothing happens, does not come up through the soil. Second year, water it, water it, water it, nothing comes up. Third year, same thing, nothing. Fourth year, same thing, nothing. But year five, a miracle happens, and it shoots up 80 feet in six weeks. Y'all looking at me like, but what's been going on that whole time? Has it been growing? Yeah, but where? Underneath. You see, we're all looking for the out here stuff, but what is God more focused on? The in here stuff, right? And that's why sometimes when we're wanting to grow in Jesus and we don't see much change or much transformation, it's because God is using the circumstances and and the word of God and the people of God and all of the things that work together to change us in here so that he can use us 
out there. But this takes time. And so be patient. And so if you're here this morning and say, yeah, I really want to get on the maturity train. Okay, first of all, you've got to partner with Jesus. You've got to partner with Jesus. You've got to work through the process and realize it's going to take time. You've got to be patient. And let me say this. When it comes to the partnership piece, I didn't mention this. What's your job? What's your role? What do you do? If it's a partnership, what do you do? Is church a big piece of it? Got, got really quiet there. Like, well, I don't know, maybe I can take it or leave it. Everything that Paul writes about in the New Testament is directed toward the local church. And you are the church, but not the scattered church only, but the gathered church as well. This is a crucial piece to your discipleship, but the sad part about it is the average American gets to the gathered assembly less than 50% of the year. Now, let me ask you this. If my job is to present you mature in Jesus Christ, and this is the primary way in which I help make it happen, is it, am I gonna be able to be successful if you're only here eight to 10 times a year? Do this. Look at your partner and say. But yet there's a billion reasons why this just falls down on the list of priorities. Am I your enemy because I tell you the truth? I hope you would accept me as your brother and tell you this is a big deal to God. But not just this, amen? Not just this. But us doing life together is a big part of it. Us spending time together, us serving the Lord, not just in here, but out there. And also us sharing our faith in Jesus Christ. All of this works together for us to partner with God so that when we do it, he is transforming us. Amen? Amen. That's our partnership. So a couple of thoughts as we close out in chapter 2, verses 2 through 5. How do we measure maturity? You ever... Have you ever wondered that? Like, how do I know I'm making any progress in, in my maturation? Because if, if it's internal and oftentimes imperceptible, then how do I, I measure it? How do I know that I'm growing? You know, this last weekend, um, our oldest daughter, Addie, uh, turned nine years old. Nine years old, Adeline turned. And um, it was amazing. So we, we went out and we saw Frozen 2. And dad fell asleep through the last hour of the movie. That's what dad does at Disney movies and um, about princesses and uh, I don't know. And then uh, we opened gifts at home and we had a lot of fun and we celebrated. And we, Rand and I were just kind of reminiscing over it. It feels like yesterday that we brought Addie home. And now at nine, she's halfway out the door. Now that that strikes two things in my heart, terror and celebration. (laughs) We're halfway there. (laughs) Don't tell her I said that. (laughs) 
But you know, at, at, our, at our house, we have, this, uh, we have the, the, the measuring wall, right? And uh, I mean, a lot of people have it at their house. This is what we've got. And so there's, there's Carrie and Emmy and Izzy and Addie. And about every six months, we kind of measure their progress. And it seems like about every six months, they grow an inch or two. And when we, you know, we put the ruler on and we measure it out and they say they grow it. And they're like, yeah, I grew. That's so exciting. That's awesome. They just flip out because they grew. They're excited to measure progress. Isn't it frustrating then that we can't figure out how to measure it? Spiritually? Okay, so let's look in the text and let's see four questions that help us measure. Four questions. I'm going to throw them out as the questions and then we're going to go back to them, okay? Question number one, and we're going to find, here, let me read the text first and I'll show you where I'm getting this. Uh, Verse two says this, um, that their hearts, that is the Christians in Laodicea and Colossians, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together and love. So question number one, to measure my maturity, do I have an increasing affection for God's people? That's a measuring stick. Here's the second one. Verse um, uh, two, to reach, uh, so okay, so that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, there's the first one. Second one, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding of the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, and whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Okay? So here's question number two. Do I have an increasing appetite for God's wisdom in my life? Okay? Here's number three, verse four. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Do I have an increasing, question number three, do I have an increasing aptitude for discernment in this world? Do you see it? Okay. And then verse number five, here's the fourth question. For though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ, am I increasing in assurance in Christ? Now let me circle back on these just for a second and unpack these, and I'm just gonna ask you a ton of questions, okay? Are you ready? Okay, how to measure, question number one, am I increasing? Question number one is this, do I have an increasing affection for God's people? You might say, wow, Pastor Matt, that, that's, that's tough because, um, yeah, uh, I'm not crazy about the church. I get it. We're all a bunch of messy people, amen? We're all works in progress, amen? We're all people in the midst of our own sanctification, amen? And so the problem when you take a bunch of sinners and you throw them in a room together, what's going to happen People are going to get hurt. People are going to get offended. People are going to get their feelings stepped on. But the question is, over the progression of my life, do I have an increasing affection for the people who are the redeemed of God, who are my family, who I'm going to live with for all of eternity? If I can't increase in my love for these people, that's a concerning problem. So let me ask these questions. Do I have an increasing desire to walk with people in their mess and in their struggle? Do I have an increasing sense of compassion 
and understanding when I learn things about people that aren't too pleasant? Do I have a sense of hopefulness when I look at a person who is messy and I see the seed of the gospel in them and I know in my heart this is not the end of the road. This person is a work in progress and I can't wait to see what they're going to be like in five years. Is that growing in our hearts or do we have an increasing or maybe even settled sense of irritation with people who haven't arrived? Do I have an increasingly critical spirit of other people who aren't where I am? I'll confess that's been the struggle that God has had to work on in my heart. Well, I've got, I got here. I dealt with that. I can, I've done that. Why can't, why can't you? Why hurry up? And makes me impatient and unloving with people. Do we have an increasing sense of unforgiveness when wronged and hurt? Question number one, do I have an increasing sense of affection for God's people? Question number two, do I have an increasing appetite for God's wisdom in my life? James chapter one, verse 22 says this, be not doers of the word only, but, I'm sorry. You caught me. Be not hearers of the word only, but doers, okay? So if wisdom is knowledge applied, right? So as we sit here and we're studying the word of God, and we're understanding what it, fit, what it means and what, am I, do I have an increasing passion and desire when I go home to take what I've heard, to take what I've learned and figure out how am I going to apply this to my life? Because here's the thing. The reality is that so many people, when they go to church, they're just watching TV, they're just, just turn on the channel, find the best preacher you can. If this preacher's not very good, go to another church, find that preacher. Just find the preacher that tickles my ears, that entertains me for 30 to 40 minutes, and then go home and nothing changes. Or do I have an increasing passion in my heart and my life to hear what the word of God says and apply the pieces of the life and death and burial and resurrection and return of Christ into the areas that the Spirit of God has pressed his thumb into. Are you with me? Or do we just kind of come to church and say, ah, I know all this. I've heard it all before. Or here's the subtle one. I really hope that so-and-so is here to hear this. Question number three, do I have an increasing aptitude for discernment in this world? An increasing ability to discern the arguments of our culture against the Bible and against Jesus Christ and answer them with wisdom and love. Do I have an increasing aptitude to discern? First Peter chapter three, verse 15 says, always be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within you. People are going to look at you and like, you're, you're, what, why are you putting all your hope in Jesus? What's all this Jesus stuff about? I remember a guy that was uh, coming here years ago, and uh, he was from North Carolina, and he came up here for a summer internship. And so, of course, down in North Carolina, everybody at Starbucks is doing a Bible study. Everybody here 
you, you whip out your Bible, you're going to get some looks, right? Okay, it's a little bit different culture. And so he's like, yeah, I went to, I went to work and, and I, I invited my boss to church. And you know what he did? He went over to his buddies and said, this guy invited me to church. This is crazy. And they laughed at him. How do we answer the hard questions of our culture that kind of mocks and ridicules our faith because they've bought into lies that they've been taught about Christians, about Christ, and about the Bible? Do we know how to answer questions like, when a person says, man, I can't, how do you trust this thing? How can you trust the Bible? Let me tell you. You say, I, I can't believe in a God that, that, that uh, would allow suffering and pain in this world. Do we know how to answer that? I can't believe in a God that would send someone to hell for eternity. I just can't believe in that. Do we know how to answer that? Or at least take a stab at it? You see, these are the plausible arguments that Paul was talking about that were taking the Colossians and leading them astray. Do we know how to not only answer them for our own hearts, but answer them for a lost and dying world that's seeking they want real answers to these questions, amen? Are we learning? Are we figuring it out? And number four, do we have an increasing assurance that Christ is truly our Savior and Lord? Look at verse 15, or verse five, I'm sorry. At the very end, in the firmness in your faith in Jesus Christ. Do you have an increasing assurance that you really do belong to the king? Do you have an increasing assurance that you really do belong to his family? Do you have a creasing passion and joy and sense of peace knowing that you belong to the Savior of the universe? Or is sin, amen, eroding at your confidence and your trust and your foundation to where now you're questioning whether or not you're even a believer? That's how sin works. It's at work in your life to erode your confidence and your stability and your hope. The sign of a mature believer is that you don't coddle sin. You drag it out in the street and shoot it dead. So the question for today is this, am I maturing in Christ? Do I want to? Do I want to be like Jesus? Am I willing to put the effort into it to exhaust myself, be willing to exhaust myself, not only for my own maturity, but for the maturity of my spouse, for the maturity of my children, for the maturity of our church? And here's the deal, church. Let me say it clearly. If you think the maturation process or or leadership responsibility all falls on me, you are sorely mistaken. It all falls on us. We are a body. I'm a mouth. I'm a big mouth. But I'm a mouth. That's what I'm good at. I took this personality profile test this last week, and they said, you know what you're really good at? You're really good at being excited, and you really like to hear yourself talk. And I'm like, (laughs) ding. That's me. They say, you're really terrible at organization and keeping things organized. I'm like, Ding, okay? But there's some of you out there who are really good at the things that I'm terrible at. I can't be everything to everyone. That's why we have the body. 
We grow together. We do this together. That's why he made us family. But the goal is to be like Jesus. So let's make that our goal together. And what would it look like if we all committed our hearts right here, right now, like, this is gonna be the thing that I'm about. Like, I can be good at a lot of things, but if people look into my life and they can say I'm great at one thing, what is that thing that I'm pursuing hard after Christ? Because I wanna be like him. Father, we pray and ask God that you would continue to work in our church. God, that we would grow and mature into the likeness and image of Christ. And Father, I ask and I pray, God, that it would not just be on me or some of the leaders, but that we would all pick up that mantle and responsibility uh, to grow in maturity together into the image of Jesus Christ. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word, and we pray in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Harvest Bible Chapel, Philadelphia. For more audio, content, and information about our church, visit harvestphiladelphia.org.